Welcome. I'm Jessica Tejan, and this is the Evolving to Exceptional podcast, where we talk about reaching peak performance in our workplaces, homes, and communities so that we can live our best life possible, an exceptional life. Welcome back to this week's episode of Evolving to Exceptional. We have a, another wonderful guest with us this week, Lori Andugay. She is the CEO of People Powered Solutions, and she helps companies become that highly sought after employer where people want to work, stay, and thrive, which is just something I'm so passionate about. So I'm happy to have Lori here with us today. Lori, I want you to give us your description of your background, your experience, and why it is you do what you do. Help us get to know who you are and why you're in the space that you're in. Sounds good. Thanks for having me on the show, first of all. So for 21 years, I worked for the same organization. It was a government ministry. And so for 21 years, I was pretty much in the same position, in the same office. Unfortunately, that position didn't really afford me a lot of growth and development from a career perspective because of the location of my office and a variety of other reasons. But for years, I would say about three years into that career, I was like, I knew that job inside out and I was poised to like, okay, on for my next career challenge within government. And once I started to realize that there wasn't a lot of opportunity unless I was open to relocating, I had to resolve myself that this is it. This is where, and then people would tell me, you've got a government job. Stop worrying about it. It's a no-brainer for you. Just enjoy the no-brainer, but that's just not how I'm wired. So I continued. And then as I was building my family, obviously, I was okay with that kind of the job being a no-brainer because I was with three young children. When my kids were really young, it's so demanding. Mentally at home, just juggling the toddlers and just all the fun jazz that goes along with that very younger kids phase of life that I was okay with the no-brainer as the kids grew and got more independent, unfortunately, I really started to feel like I was stuck. I really started to feel like, wow. And everybody would say, you can't leave that job. It's got great benefits and great pension. You've got to stick around. You're in government. You've got it. It's golden. And it is golden, but it's golden handcuffs because I was not happy. I was not old enough to say that, oh, I'll just coast till retirement. No, I, was, I still had a lot to give and I still had a lot in me that I wanted to do. So I started to plan my exit, essentially. And by that point, I was say at this 15 year mark, went back to school, did my postgraduate studies in labor relations and human resources management. And then I started to explore what is it that I really love about the opportunities that I have had internally and which pieces of that was I more passionate about. And it was really all relevant to not the operational HR stuff, the more strategic HR stuff. So that organizational excellence. This notion of creating happier workplaces. So basically, it drilled down to these 10 motivational needs that people need to have met to be happy and feel fulfilled at work. That, when I started to study and deep dive into that, I started to realize why I felt stuck all those years. I started to see which elements of my current workplace were failing to meet those motivational needs. Once I started to hone in on that, I decided that I would start consulting on the side and that although I couldn't make any changes within my government because it's such a big machine, that I would start working in smaller companies and helping them create work environments, workplaces that provide for all of those needs. And that, that inevitably, of course, leads to higher retention, lower turnover, happier, more engaged, people excited to be at work and to be doing the work they're doing, right? Started consulting on the side. Eventually, my side jobs 
became way too crazy busy and I was taking pretty much all my time off to do these projects. So I ended up where I was like, okay, there's obviously I'm onto something here. There's a demand of sorts. So I was allowed to take one year leave without pay. So because I'm risk averse, I wasn't going to just take the leave and break <laughs> those golden shackles and just go where the wind took me. But I wanted to at least have that safety net to fall back on. And within the first year, I just exploded and it was just crazy. And now I've been able to and blessed to bring in a team of people to support some of our projects. And that's basically what we do now. We work with organizations to build happier, more productive workplaces. I, I just absolutely love that's what you do. And I know that you mentioned that you are currently working on a new book that's going to be coming out this summer. Want to tell us just a little bit about that book and what it's about and what your intention or, or what your desire is with writing that book? Sure. So what the book is about is that discovery I made all those years ago. Those 10 motivational needs, understanding what are the 10 needs of your employees. There's so much literature, so many articles out there that says this is what drives motivation. This is what drives employee engagement. There's all this literature and there's all these needs. Sometimes it's a variation of five top needs or five top drivers of engagement. Okay, I drilled it down to 10. But what's missing out there is now what do I do with that? But now what? Which is the key. So not only does the book deep dive into those 10 motivational needs, those drivers, what makes someone want to show up and thrive, then it talks about a methodology to a really simple yet highly effective methodology. It's the methodology I use with all of my organizations I work with to really start to implement and change and shift that workplace culture the minute you're done the book. Actually, probably after each chapter, you've got some. And the way I've structured it, at the end of each chapter, there's some key takeaways and then an action plan. You're basically building your action plan to do that cultural transformation. By the time you're done, you've got some really quick, low to no cost, quick wins all the way through to those longer term, a bit more intense initiatives. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that methodology. What are those elements that you take the workplaces that you work with through and that you're going to highlight or talk about in your book that really make a difference to transforming or changing the, those workplace practices? Sure. I will. How about I list off those 10 needs, first of all? Sure. Yeah, right. let's do that. What do people need at work? They need clarity. They need to understand their role. They need to understand the expectations of the organization. And on the flip side of that, they need to understand what they can expect from the organization. So it's a flip. It's a two, two-way street. Both way. Yeah. Communication. They want communication. They want to know that they've got the information they need to do the job they were hired to do. They don't want to feel like they're in the dark. They want to know what that future focus is to that point. The third one is purpose and impact. People want to know that the work they do makes a difference in the lives of people. A lot of organizations, they have a vision and mission and values. They'll regurgitate them to their employees. But where they fail is they don't help the employee connect to that broader purpose. They don't help the employee understand that regardless of the role you play within the organization, you are the reason that we're able to actually achieve our vision. So that's purpose and impact is a third one. Recognition, rewards, we see it all over. People want to know, they want to feel valued, heard, and seen. So recognition and rewards is absolutely important to them. Work-life balance, the pandemic, obviously has amplified the need for that and that they need to understand that there is some level of flexibility and that the employer respects and supports the individual having a life outside of their job. So certainly that leadership, key, definitely. 
in terms of providing them with the guidance, the support, but also that they take move away the leadership that moves away from that command and control. You do what I say because I said so towards the more coach and empowered. Help me. Let's work together to help you troubleshoot this because I have complete confidence that you're able to do that. Autonomy and empowerment is another one. So again, to the point of coaching and to helping people understand that you've hired them, you trust them and conveying that trust by giving them the opportunity to innovate and to do things the way they see fit. All the while, of course, still attaining those organizational objectives. So that autonomy and empowerment is another one. Growth opportunities, my God, my own situation, right? Growth opportunities and training and development relevant to those growth opportunities. So not only do they need to have to see that there's room to grow within the organization. So that's a definite important one, like definitely an important one. Then that next driver, that next need is to continuously be invested in to develop and to evolve your skill set. And maybe that means I don't want to be a manager. I just want to continue to evolve within my role. So meeting them where they're at and helping them grow within that sphere. And the last one, of course, is relationships. You spend, what, 8, 10, 12 hours a day with people. It's important to have systems that facilitate those relationships, peer-to-peer, top-down, bottom-up, right? All around, 360 relationship tending mechanisms. So the way I approach it is my 3M approach. So easy. It marries talent development, that that whole employee journey, right? So that end-to-end employee experience. And so I work with organizations to first map, the first M, map out their employee experience. What's your current state? How are you actually attracting? What does that look like? Okay. How are you communicating throughout that attraction phase? What are you providing to convey purpose and impact to prospective candidates to get them excited early on? How are you doing that? So we map that out. And then we go all the way through attraction and recruitment processes. What kind of things are you doing to demonstrate and showcase the level of communication? We're going to use communication as an example throughout that process to show the, and showcase the level of communication they can expect once they come into the organization. So there's little things like templated emails and emails from the manager, emails from HR, providing them as much information as possible to minimize that intimidation and that anxiety factor that sets in on that first day. How can we minimize that? By providing them with a lot of information, facilitating connection before they even start. Then I move them through to that next phase, onboarding. Okay, what does that look like? And then we talk about that. We talk about all these 10 needs and what, how are we actually providing for these through these processes and procedures? And what can we be doing more to increase the degree to which we're providing these different for these different needs? And then we go through to training and that orientation phase and ensuring that organizations are not making orientation a half day thing. They need to recognize that it should be a 90 day at the very least supported structured training plan where they were conveying expectations. We're letting them know it's okay if at the end of the first week, you don't know everybody's name, that's normal. And you're normalizing some of those, those experiences all the while connecting them with a buddy, for example. And making sure that buddy's transmitting all the cultural know-how, all that stuff, those unspoken rules, like where do people go for breaks and where's the closest coffee shop to what's the practice of, I don't know, in meetings, do people just throw their hands up? Do they just speak up? Like all that stuff, that, that cultural stuff is to be transmitted through the body. And then you're connecting them also with a mentor who is tasked, of course, with conveying and transmitting that more technical and acting as that lifeline for the more technical job specific stuff. And then we go to, okay, once they're fully trained, 
how are you continuing to develop them? We talk about things like growth plans and high potential programs and stuff like that, as well as just what kind of resources are you providing them to support and invest in their ongoing training and development? Then we talk, of course, about performance management and how to use that exercise as a powerful growth mapping tool and how to help your managers use that tool and have those coaching conversations to help them establish some really good stretch, smart, of course, goals in their current job, as well as to start to map out what we need to build to get them to that next position. And then I even talk about exit because that's just as important from a brand protection, <laughs> reputation, or safeguarding perspective. If you're not doing anything at exit, if you're just letting them go and you're not taking advantage to gather that valuable data of continuous improvement at that stage, then, you know, you're losing out on some really great information that would enable you and give you the information you need to validate maybe what you're hearing during the engagement surveys or satisfaction surveys, but also to really start to improve on that employee experience. So we start by mapping out that experience end to end. We identify right away some low-hanging fruit, quick wins, medium, longer-term things that need to be done. And then we measure. We figure out where are we at now? What's our retention? We look at all the, those key HR metrics to figure out and to strike that baseline. And then, so that's the second M, map, measure. And then we mobilize. Then we prioritize some of the stuff we've seen. We pump out some really quick wins, but then we start to prioritize and develop working groups to build the pieces that are missing to really improve that overall employee experience. So map, measure, mobilize. That's that 3M approach. Oh, I love that. I love that it, you drill so much down to those three steps as you're taking workplaces through it to make those transitions. I'm curious, as you've worked with different organizations, if you've seen common themes of where organizations tend to get hung up the most or struggle the most often. Absolutely. Where they struggle the most, they assume that people want more money. And so they say, they hang their hats on that. No, we don't got additional budget. So I can't offer wage increases. Sorry, that's not an option. And when I come in and I tell them like, okay, wait, it's actually more often than not about the money. I, when I was shopping in my career, <laughs> I was shopping outside the government. I was willing to take a $20,000 pay cut just to find something that fulfilled my brain, right? So what I hear a lot of is lack of communication. People feel they're left in the dark, feel they're not provided the information that they need to do the work they were supposed to do. They feel like there's all these kind of things happening up there, but that they're not told about them. But then they're berated when they don't actually deliver on these unspoken or uncommunicated expectations. I hear lack of recognition from managers is often an issue. And the next one that I hear a lot is just poor management, poor leadership, untrained leadership that does not know how to lead their teams. I hear two kind of different profiles, if you will. One is the manager who is so afraid of being perceived as a micromanager that he's hands off altogether and thinks that's the good thing because I'm just not, I'm not going to interfere as long as they're doing their work. But really, there are team members that require more support. There are team members that require, here's the box to play in. And now you can go and innovate within that box, but they need that structure or else they feel unsupported, right? And of course, they're more likely to disengage. So there's that profile. And then there's a profile of the manager who just thinks he's the boss, <laughs> doesn't recognize he's supposed to be a leader and he wants to just be the boss. So there's a lot of almost, I don't know how to describe it. 
I'm sure you've seen it too. It's just yeah, like control, power, control. Yeah, that kind of behavior. I'm curious a little bit if we dig into that manager leadership piece, because I, I keep hearing that too. And I'm curious a bit on, are you seeing that like managers have been trained and they just aren't doing it? Or are they not trained at all? Are they, what is the challenge? What are you seeing in that space that's maybe leading to that outcome? I guess in recent months, I've been working a lot with manufacturing, more technical industry clients. What I'm seeing there is that the most technically strong person on the team is being promoted into a leadership role. Now, unfortunately, the most technically strong person does not translate to a good leader necessarily without proper training. So although technically they're super strong, their softer skills just don't, they just don't cut it. And they've not been trained to further hone and develop those softer skills. We actually, one of my clients, we just conducted, oh my God, I think we're on number 18, 18 different focus groups with leadership throughout the organization. They're a global company. So we did 18 different focus groups and the leaders themselves say it. When it comes to those more courageous conversations, having to be a bit more tactful, understanding how to recognize my team members. I just, I have no, we've never been trained as leaders within this organization. We're hearing it loud and clear as much as they went through, they'd went through the Carnegie leadership development type programs, but for them, that wasn't enough. It wasn't, they weren't able to relate it back to their day to day. We're working at now building this, that the focus groups are actually part of that needs assessment phase for building a leadership academy, but that's really organization specific. So we're going to build all of these leadership tools will have some of the softer skill content. So definitely some training, be it instructor-led or self-directed. So there'll be some blended kind of learning opportunities for just the softer skills, but also the more technical business acumen pieces are also going to have some how to lead this part of the business process, how to lead this part with your team, very specific and flavored to that organization. So obviously the uptake. And the assimilation of that training will be much deeper and much longer lasting than this kind of off the shelf type stuff. So I'm curious, because so this a little bit sharing of some of what I've seen too, I totally agree with what you're saying. And I wonder, one of the things I got so frustrated with as an HR talent management leader and practitioner myself was that we would train managers. They actually were very well trained. They knew what they needed to do, but they couldn't seem to actually do it. And one of the things I've discovered since then is that there's a deeper level of blockage that most of the training programs are at this behavior level on the surface. We're going to change this behavior. We're going to get them setting expectations or providing feedback and or recognition more frequently. But that when you drop below that, as I've coached leaders, when you drop below that level, you end up finding out that they actually have feelings towards that they shouldn't have to recognize or that they were never recognized. So why should they? So there's this resentment to actually provide recognition. And so you get to that deeper level and it's not until you make like a true neuropathway shift and neurological change that you actually get leaders to take action on the behaviors that they know they really should be doing or that they're supposed to be doing. And so I keep seeing this theme, and I'm curious if you do too, of going through really prestigious training programs, management leadership training programs, but that the people that have gone through it are still not performing 
as leaders the way that they need to be in order to create the results. I'm just curious of your thoughts on that. I have seen it. Absolutely. But I also, again, I've accounted it. I 100% agree with what you're saying. And I've worked, I also coach and I coach leaders who have uncovered the deep-seated fears or like you say, this baggage that they've brought and has now biased their approach to leadership and really prevented them from taking that that ideal leader approach because they say that they, like you said, they never got it. But I think there's a blend of things that I've seen is helpful in that case too, though. It, apart from naming it, calling it and recognizing it and bringing awareness to it, I think there's a mindset piece that's really important, that accountability mindset and helping them develop that mindset and understand what they're signing up for as a leader. And then there needs to be a bit of an evaluation of if you're not willing to sign that leadership contract, essentially, there's, I don't know if you've ever heard of Vince Molinero, he's got like this these books, right, on accountable leadership. Okay. And so the leadership contract, and if, if you're not willing to sign the leadership contract because you're not on board with everything that it entails, then I think there needs to be a point where, man, it, the, the senior leadership team needs to reassess whether or not this person is, in fact, an appropriate leader. The next piece I want to say is where most leadership development programs fall short, they're a one and done. They're done okay. over a series, fine. But I actually also built an end, like an, a complete leadership development program. And it's a certification program that I recognize that it's not a one and done. So I take the train coach connect route. You train them, front load, lots of training, lots of challenges in between where they can hone the skill on the job. But then you need to connect them with a coach for the next six months. So they continue to hone because it's like anything, any muscle, if you're not going to practice it, then obviously it's not going to come as naturally. So unless you're able to practice it and then talk about some of the challenges you encountered as you were practicing it, you will never be able to hone it to the level of true leadership unless you're connected to that third-party neutral who's going to help you really work through those challenges and talk about things like you were saying, like the, those deep-seated maybe angst, anxieties that are at play. So for me, the train coach and that last piece is connect because I'm sure you've heard it too, how lonely it is being in a leadership position. You're expected to be that conduit between your direct reports and your senior leaders. And unfortunately, when you're not doing so well, or you encounter a challenge, or you've got those kind of intrusive thoughts about your past experiences with leaders, you've got no one to go and talk about them, right? Yeah. So I connect them by having these masterminds where there's leaders from across a variety of different industries, and they're able to bring their challenge collectively troubleshoot and then leave with some solutions. So I think that the most comprehensive leadership development program needs to have all three of those components to set your leaders or that aspiring leader up for success. Yeah, I love that. And one of the things, so I was an executive leader for many years and led talent management, HR, legal, IT, a bunch of different operations functions. And I always joke, it's lonely at the top. And one of my biggest mistakes as a leader was not getting coaching sooner, was not getting that outside support that could help me continue to grow and develop. And so I was limited by only that internal, those internal relationships. And the higher you get within the organization, the more limiting that becomes because there's, the, there's fewer people that can really help to coach, mentor, and develop you and push you beyond your current state. And I like what you say about the coaching, the need to continue on. One of the things I've observed is that leaders, like it, 
it takes years, not a year. It takes a long time to get good at some of those leadership and management competencies or capabilities, yeah. setting expectations. I still joke like I've been working at it for 15 years and I'm still going back to, okay, remember, you have to realign. Remember, this yeah. is an expectations problem. And so one of the things I think that to your point that I think happens is leaders think they've got it and they stop working at it. They stop <laughs> trying to, to reinforce it, trying to work on it. And when we talk about some of those fears or limiting beliefs or the things that, that are holding them back or that get in their way, I like to think of that as, as actually, they're actually the neural pathways we've established, right? So they may be conscious or they may be unconscious and they may have nothing to do with the current situation and everything to do with just how we grew up, how we were raised, the experiences that we've had. And so if we don't address those, if leaders don't have a coach or a place to go, to address those, those aren't going to change on their own. And I think that's actually why most like habit setting and some of those, and I'm not knocking them, but by why a lot of those don't work because the willpower you practice of, I'm just going to force my way through this is really hard to overcome those neural pathways, those ways of doing things you've yeah. always done. And so that makes it really difficult for leaders to create that change. And so when organizations say, ah, oh, my leaders are good. Oh, they're pretty good. Like I just always hesitate because are they really, if they're not continuing to focus on how they're being good and how they are continuing to reinforce those practices? hundred percent agree. You're right. You're right. So I'm curious, you work with leaders a lot. You talked about your leadership development program. What do you see as one of the one of the other big challenges that you are having to bring change to within workplaces as things that you've got to bring in new programs or change their perspective on how a particular employee-centered practice or people-centered practice needs to work within their businesses? I, I'll have to hang it up on the performance development process. Yep. For me, they see that as an appraisal, as an evaluation. It's you Let's see if you measured up to my expectations and whether or not it warrants a raise. They really don't understand how it's, it's really how they can measure those 10 motivational drivers. It's how, you know, that first exercise, how they structure that exercise and the tools they use to conduct that exercise should really help them to, it's basically a roadmap to that employee on an ongoing basis. It's so crazy. But they don't recognize that. And it's too often done as an annual exercise as opposed to this ongoing plan that's ever evolving and that it, it's just there to cue the conversation. And they see it as the bane of their existence. It's too often than not done as a hindsight exercise. In my government experience, it was like fiscal year end of March. Second week of March, they'd be like, okay, guys, we need your PDLP. Let's send those in and let's get those signed off. And I'm like, Knowing everything we know from being in in the industry, we know that you're supposed to start. This is how you map out your upcoming year. It's about next year, not about what I've done in the past year. So how do you think that was making me feel, for example, as an employee? It was like, oh, yeah, we're just doing this to check that box. I really have zero control over my fate within this organization is what I'm hearing by doing it that way. And for you telling me, oh yeah, what do I write for my goals? What did you achieve last year? Just put those on there and we'll sign off on them. Like it, it was so done 
in a way that was counter conducive to engagement and to making people feel a part of something bigger than themselves. So I'm curious, why is it that we've had research for over 10, 15 years saying that performance appraisals are ineffective, that putting in ratings, rankings into the performance process does not equate to greater performance or engagement results. It doesn't translate. Why are organizations still clinging to and using these practices that we know actually negatively impact performance rather than positively? I think it's so they can sleep better at night. I know that seems really rude, but I think that often, more often than not, they are very results-oriented from a business perspective, not from a person perspective. So for them, they want to be able to say, they want to measure exactly to which degree that employee was able to advance and get results that translate into dollar signs, ultimately. So I think it's for them to be able to sleep better, say, my employees are productive. I don't think the happy or the engaged part is ever part of the equation for them. And I think that shift in mindset that needs to occur is not occurring as fast as we'd like to. Hence the book, the podcast, and trying to broaden that awareness on a global level of what actually works and what doesn't. Let me ask you a different question because I'm curious about what as maybe the biggest shift or the biggest change that workplaces need to be aware of that's maybe new in response to the current workplace challenges, the future of what workplace and business is going to look like. Like we talked about those appraisals. We've known about that for a long time. That's almost you're behind the curve at this point. If you're still using performance reviews with ratings and rankings, then you miss the mark in terms of really making results in terms of performance and engagement. And you've got to almost catch up. But for those that are on maybe the leading edge that are doing really great things, what do they most need to be aware of? Or what are you seeing as the next most important thing from a workplace and people-centered approach to to workplace performance and results? I'm not going to go into the typical work-life balance because I feel that's definitely been, we, people are aware of that as well. Like behind the curve at this point, three years into the pandemic, we know the importance of offering flexible work arrangements and stuff. What I've seen evolving is the importance of having an internal communication slash marketing strategy that aligns with your talent development, with your talent, like your, all of your talent management strategies. So when you're pumping out different pieces to be doing it in a way that's got multiple channels, that's creative, that, that'll continue to build on momentum and excitement internally, because when you create that kind of brand, internal brand with your people, it reaps rewards in terms of referrals, in terms of filling that external pipeline, because suddenly people want to be a part of that. So in showcasing some of that internal culture externally, what people can expect internally. So I think the marketing and branding piece has where we used to work very siloed there was communications for HR purposes, memos and newsletters and whatnot. I'm seeing a trend towards we need to marry the two and work very in tandem so that we're being strategic in everything we put out there to start to brand the culture and to start to attract that next generation of workers. I, I love that you talked about that. I just interviewed a chief strategy and people officer at a startup called Largely 
And they've got a tool that helps to market to prospective candidates. So instead of just getting communications with when you're going to interview and the basic things through the process, you're getting video content about the culture, what, you know, what do employees say about the company? And so it's really like a marketing-based approach to candidates. Mm-hmm. And then it takes them all the way through the onboarding process. So they have this really like engaging marketing kind of based experience, which I thought was a really a cool thought or cool yeah. approach to holding on to candidates and then really getting them engaged early on into the workplace and into the organization. I think that's just really powerful. It lines up with what you're talking about with how those communications become engaging and create that outcome. And one of the things I saw bridging talent management and IT was how often technology rollouts or rollouts of new programs would fail because of ineffective communication. That if Mm -hmm. you could partner, we partnered our talent management or HR group with our IT group to roll out things to, to make changes. You have the training communication skills with the technology skilled people in order to make those implementations more effective. And more often than not, the technology implementations, whatever they were, would fail without that engaging communication. Yeah. 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 Awesome. That's awesome. I see the parallel to what you were referencing earlier, too, in terms of kind of front loading with information with the video and stuff. They had a company I worked with. They had a platform for new hires. And so anyone who was hired in the past in the last three months stay on that platform. They have mentors within that platform. It's like a social media type platform. So new candidates, even before they accept the offer, they're thrown into there. So if they've got questions about the organization, they want to know if they have resources and people to talk to forum style right then and there. And they start to meet connections even before they start. So I thought that was a really interesting way of bridging those relationship building needs as well. I love that. I think that, yeah, I think that's so powerful and such creative ideas to to create that exceptional experience, something that is truly differentiated and different and increases your chances for that higher level of employee engagement and results that you want to see as an organization. Absolutely. And your acceptance rate, bottom line, your offer acceptance rate. One in four candidates are already shopping for jobs outside your company. It is a job seekers market out there. So you need to get creative in terms of attracting that next generation of workers. Absolutely. So I'm curious, when is your book coming out? What is it called? Where can people be looking for it to come out? Okay, so not going to divulge the name because I actually did a social media thing where I put out all of the top names and asked people to select their top three. And so there, there is one of those top threes is one ended up being the name. So I, I'm not going to give the name. If all goes well and if I can stay really dedicated to my editing, it should be out this summer, later this summer, ideally earlier, but realistically, probably later this summer, if things don't go as planned, maybe early fall. And so people can look for it. It'll be on Amazon. And if they want to connect with me on all of my different social media platforms, People Powered Solutions, if they want to look us up, or Lorianne Dugay, they can look us up as well on LinkedIn, on Instagram, on Twitter, and on Facebook. Fantastic, Lori. Thank you so much for joining me. Want to give you a chance to give any final thoughts. Is there anything you'd like to leave our audience with in terms of final thoughts or insights to support them on their development? I've got two things. So number one, as a final thought, I would say is that it doesn't cost a lot of money. You can. There are a lot of no to low cost 
improvements you can make to your current employee experience. So certainly start to look for some of those low hanging fruit, as I mentioned earlier, increasing your communication from the time the person accepts the offer through to the time they start their actual job. How can you communicate more frequently, provide them with an FAQ, provide them with additional information? This stuff doesn't cost a lot of money. It costs nothing. It's stuff you would need to be doing anyways. So start with those smaller ones, then grow from there. And the second thing is, I actually, if people want to go to my website, which is www.bepeoplepowered.com, we just rebranded to Be People Powered. So certainly if they want to go there, they can sign up to download. I have a nice infographic of all those 10 drivers. So if they wanted to download that and keep them handing, what are those 10 needs? Just as they're mapping out that employee experience, then that comes in handy to try and figure out what are the elements we're trying to make sure are being provided for. So they're welcome to go sign up. And once they sign up, they get the download link right on my website. Fantastic. We will include that link in the show notes for everybody and appreciate you sharing with us those 10 drivers and what you're seeing and what you're experiencing in terms of the challenges in these workplaces and the work to make them more people powered, more people focused. So appreciate you coming on, Lori. Thank you so much. And to our audience, as always, just remember to keep evolving, keep growing, keep expanding.